The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Well, good evening. It's good to be with you. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, you're right, I do have a uh, non-native accent. Um, so I came from the, the UK. I've uh, been in the States for 10 years. My wife is uh, Kelly. We do have seven kids. And uh, normally she would be with us, but our, uh, our older kids are our babysitters as well. And we had our uh, youth group all night last night, so they're actually like walking zombies at the moment. Uh, probably not even walking, finding some way to sleep in a dark corner. So uh, she's at home looking after the younger ones, and I get to be here and uh, bring God's word. So um, thanks for the inv- invitation. I'm grateful for Jacob's invite. Um, just sorry to, to miss him, but but excited and glad to be here as part of King's Cross Church um, to see you. Uh, we've obviously been praying for you and uh, spoken a lot about you um, as part of King's uh, King of Grace Church. So it's good to actually finally be here and, uh, and see you and worship with you. Um, so if you have a Bible, and I hope you have something that you can see uh, the Bible, we're in, um, going to look in the book of Judges, which is uh, in the Old Testament, uh, seventh book in, if you're working from the front. Help you find your way there. Uh, in, uh, in our church, King, is, uh, King of Grace Church, we're actually doing a survey through the Old Testament, um, kind of hitting some high notes, helping us to see how does um, the Old Testament kind of piece together and point us to Christ. Um, how do we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament and the Gospel, essentially. So um, I had the privilege of preaching last Sunday from the book of Judges, and uh, I'm going to bring that to you this evening. So let me pray. And then um, then I'll begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we can look at a book in the Old Testament, um, an ancient text, and yet know that you will speak to us. Know that the God in heaven is not um, dormant, is not ancient, but living and active and faithful, loving, kind, gracious, eager, eager to speak, to meet with us and bring fresh grace into our lives. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that this evening. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ through the book of Judges and worship you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, before we actually get to the text, um, I want to start with a little story. It's a story of a little boy, a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. Uh, It's me, and uh, it comes from my childhood, I uh, had a an older cousin, have an older cousin who uh, I've always looked up to, and uh, I remember, I guess I was ten or so, going over to his house, and um, I came across a graphic novel of the life of Samson, so a, a big comic book, essentially, um, the life of Samson, and uh, if you don't know, he's, in, he's, fa- he's, he's found in the book of Judges. And it's one of these lasting childhood memories that I have. This book, I was mesmerized. I don't remember many of the details. I'm sure I was more occupied with the pictures rather than the words. Um, but I remember there was, there's lions being ripped in pieces. There's uh, town gates being ripped off their hinges. Uh, there's a small army of the enemy being defeated with, it, with a donkey's jawbone. Um, of course, if you know the story, there's this kind of back and forth, will he, won't he, in terms of revealing the secret of his strength in telling the woman of his, his life, his love of his life, that his secret is found in his, in his hair. And is he going to get a haircut or not? And then, lo and behold, he gets this un- unplanned haircut. 
and loses all of his strength. He's overpowered and, and, brought, and subdued by the enemy. Uh, then there's this gnarly part of they gouge his eyes out. I remember that bit quite vividly. Um, but then right at the end of the story, there's this big triumphant climax. Uh, God gives him his strength back. And uh, he destroys this huge number of the enemy in this final, final climactic uh, conclusion to his life. And I remember reading that comic book, and again, it left me with a lasting impression that overall, Samson is a pretty cool guy. He's a pretty mighty hero. And to be honest with you, I have a hard time even now reading through the book of Judges and reading the accounts of the lives of the people there and thinking of them in anything other than terms of like, this is a boy's own adventure book. That's all it is, beginning to end, just one story after another of heroes that you can read and, and get excited about. Stories like Gideon, who defeated a vast number of enemy with just 300 men. And then there's others, there's stories of the lady who uh, defeated, defeated one of God's enemies with a tent peg. That's another gnarly story. Uh, and then there's a story that uh, is very popular in my household. For some reason, my kids love this one. The one about the guy who loses his sword by sticking it into the belly of an evil king. And he's so big, his sword gets lost inside his stomach. For some reason, my kids love that one. Well, perhaps like you, I don't know what your familiarity with, is with those stories and the book of Judges. Maybe you've heard them in other contexts. Maybe you've, you remember reading through them in the Bible. Um, but what you remember, perhaps like mine, is that your lasting impression is that the book of Judges, it tells us about a heroic group of people. Um, through, the period, through a period in the history of the people of Israel. And if that is your impression, if, that's, if those stories resonate with you and thinking, yeah, it's a book about heroes, um, then that's, that's a problem. It's a problem with, it was a problem for me, it's a problem for you. It's a problem at a surface level because a simple reading of the text, a simple reading of that book, rather than just looking at the pictures in a graphic novel as I did, um, it shows us pretty quickly that that's not the main theme of that book. That's not why God has given it to us. It would be fair to say that's not even, like, heroes is not even really a sub-theme of the book. It's not that it's not there. It's just that as we know more about the characters in the book of Judges, we actually see that their lives are very unheroic, very much walking away from God as much as they were walking toward him. A plain reading of the book of Judges, which I would recommend uh, you do, you can read through it in the, in the following week perhaps, it should at first actually leave us, well, experiencing many things. I think amazement are the stories that are in there, but also appalled at some of the stories that are in there. Confused sometimes, like, how do I understand this? And also re revolted, um, not just at some of the people, the heroes of Israel, but also the people of Israel. And we're going to consider that in a bit more detail in a minute. But not simply on a surface level in terms of just getting the book wrong, if we understand it correctly that way. It's also a problem on a more deeper personal level in terms of how does this book affect me if our understanding is simply that it's a jumbled up collection of stories of heroes occasionally bizarre but interesting stories well it's going to re it's going to pass the time to to read them um, but it essentially isn't going to change me okay it may hold up for me an impression about heroes maybe something that i can seek to emulate but overall that is not what God intends it for, and ultimately that impression can lead to disappointment and discouragement when we fall short of the hero that we want to be ourselves. If that's your view, as it was my view, then that the book of Judges is more these sort of heroes that we look at, 
then for you, the book of Judges has become an ornamental tractor. Ornamental tractor, let me explain that. That's, that's not an obscure, well, it is an obscure English expression. Not that it's commonly used. It's obscure in English because I'm obscure and, and I used it. So. Um, so let me explain what I mean by an ornamental tractor. I don't know if you've seen these around, but I have uh, a neighbor not far from us. On their front yard is a, uh, an old tractor painted up nice bright red colors. It looks very nice. I, I like the look at it. And um, it's there for display purposes only. And at this time of year, I've seen others around the towns as I've, as I've driven around. Sometimes they're, they're uh, dressed up with some Thanksgiving displays or harvest displays. I've even seen one in a children's playground, which I assume is there for the children to climb all over. But an ornamental tractor is there simply to be looked at, and it's found interesting. Maybe it's for children to play with, but that's not the original intention of the tractor. It's not what it was intended to do. I don't think anyone at John Deere was designing a tractor and thinking, I've got to get this just right so that it looks good on the village green. And the book of Judges is not an ornamental tractor. It's not there to simply look good or to entertain us or to entertain our children. God has preserved the book of Judges so that we can know more about him, that we can know more about his son, and we can understand how we can have salvation through him. So the intention of my message, and I trust um, as we go through it, God will show us and help us put the engine back in that tractor and get it working again. That the purpose of the book is to reveal a God of all faithfulness who calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. Now, before we get into that, we need to understand a little bit of context to understand where, how do we get to the book of Judges. So previously, uh, in the life of the people of Israel, the people have been led by Moses um, out of uh, Egypt where they were under oppression into the promised land. God showed his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan. That's why he gets his name, the promised land. It was God's promise to give it to him. And he initiated this move out of Egypt um, in this very dramatic fashion. If you're familiar with those story, the stories of the 10 plagues, um, God didn't just kind of hush them off and get them out of Egypt subtly and quietly. It was in dramatic fashion displaying his power and his sovereignty. But because of the people of Israel's sin and lack of faith in God, he punished the people to walk in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of Israel passed away. And God so chose to give the promised land into the next generation of people and show his faithfulness to a new generation. And so when Moses died, the leadership of Israel passed on to Joshua, his assistant, and Joshua led the people into the promised land. And he did this. And if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, everything went ever so smoothly and everybody lived happily ever after. Not quite so much. So what happened? What, what, what happened? What wrong, wrong with the plan? Why did Israel not enjoy this life of blessing that God intended to give them in this promised land? Well, Part of the task of settling into Cana was dealing with the current inhabitants, whom God said to destroy because of their idolatry, going after false gods. And the conquest under Joshua starts out very well. If you read the opening chapters of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6, we read about the um, conquest of Jericho. 
But then immediately after that, there's this series of very significant road bumps in that plan. There's a story of Achan who treasures and covets, sorry, covers the treasure that they recover from the town of Jericho in Joshua chapter 7. And then rather than destroying all the um, inhabitants of of, uh, Cana, they're actually deceived into making an alliance with a small tribe, the Gibeonites. Rather than destroying, they're making alliances with the, the locals. But overall, through the rest of the book of Joshua, there is this overall progression of the plan of conquest. And the book of Joshua ends with the land being divided up into between the 12 tribes. But the conquest isn't complete. And the book ends with Joshua asking the people of Israel to swear to God that they're going to follow him and not turn to false gods. And they do this. They commit themselves to following God. And the book ends with the death of Joshua. And that's when we get to the book of Judges. So... Rather than, you'll be grateful to know, rather than go through the whole of the book of Judges, I'm not going to read that all to you tonight. Actually, for preachers, this is a great book because there's a very helpful summary. So turn to chapter 2 of the book of Judges, and I'm going to read verse 11 through to the end of that chapter. And this is a little summary of everything that happens in the book of Judges. Now, again, I recommend that you go away later in the week and maybe read the rest of it. But this is a summary that God has recorded for us. So hear this. This is what happened after the death of Joshua. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the God, the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the lord and they did not do so whenever the lord raised up judges for them the lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So I trust from, as we dig into this passage, and then I'm going to jump around a little bit through other verses in the passage as well, in the book, we're going to see that the God of all faithfulness calls 
and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. And I'm going to break that down into, into four pieces. So the first piece we want to look at is that man is unfaithful. We see right from the get-go in that verse 11 that the people very quickly turned away from following God to following other, other gods in the land. And I, I want you to feel the weight of that from this book. It's not simply that one verse that describes how the people quickly turned away. It's repeated again and again and again through the different scenarios and stories that we encounter. So re- hear these other verses as I read them about how the book has been, has records the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. In chapter 3, verse 7, we read, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. 3, verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Chapter 10, verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And then finally, chapter 13, verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. I want us to understand the weight of what is being recorded in this book. It's not one of heroic people. It's one of unfaithful people. And it's not simply a repeating cycle. The people turned away from God again and again and again. It actually gets worse and worse and worse. As we see in verse 19 of the passage I read, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. The book of Judges has been described not as a cycle, repeating cycle, but a downward spiral, as if the sin and disobedience of the people actually gets worse and worse in this downward spiral kind of pattern. And we can see that as we look at the, ch- the chapter, actually, the book, do a quick contrast, the very first verse of the book and the very last verse of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first of us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Israelites are keen to obey God's command, and they turn to God and ask God, How do we serve you? The very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, doing what was right in God's eyes was the, what was called of the people of Israel. But they turn away from doing what was right in God's eyes to doing what was right in their own eyes, which by definition means they reject doing what is right in God's eyes. We even see that in verse, um, again towards the end, chapter 21, verse 25, Comparing, asking God, how do we fight the Canaanites as you asked us to? In chapter 21, verse 25, they go again to God, but this time they're asking a slightly different question. Sorry, chapter 20, verse 18, it is. They say, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, 
Who shall go up first among us to fight against the people of Benjamin? They start off in the book asking God, how do we obey you and fight the people in the land? They close the book by asking God, how do we fight among ourselves? The people of Benjamin is a tribe of Israel, and that's what they're looking to do. Now, this isn't in an abstract sense, though, looking at the people of Israel and looking down on them and saying, gosh, weren't they bad? For us to understand the book of Judges, to us understand the Bible, we need to understand that we are no different from anyone else that we read in these pages. We need to understand our read ourselves into this book. The Bible has been consistent to display ever since the fall that we read about in the, in the garden. The natural inclination of man is to do what is right in our own eyes and evil in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you take one step out of the light or you take a hundred steps out of the light, you're still standing in the darkness. And if we are, whether you're a Christian or not, even as a Christian, it is an uncomfortable truth to be reminded and remember that we cannot be faithful to God because my heart is inclined to, be, to being unfaithful to God. But we need to understand as we read the scriptures, we don't look through the book, we don't look at the world around us in terms of us and them. The Bible portrays everyone simply as us. That apart from God's grace, we are only inclined to abandon God. But that isn't the only thing the Bible says about man or about God. But we want to understand the question first, how did it happen? How did Israel go from being brought out of Egypt and wanting to follow God to now abandoning God and embrace the gods of the land? In verse, uh, two, uh, verse 13 of that chapter I've read, in verse uh, chapter 3, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, we're not familiar with those gods in our, in our culture today, but Baal and Ashtaroth were a collection of gods that were worshipped primarily because they represented prosperity and fertility of the land. You know, it was an agricultural economy. Um, so Baal and uh, Ashtaroth were worshipped in order to bring prosperity. And if you're familiar with the story when Moses initially sent some spies out into the land to look at the land of Cana, the people came back with these amazing reports. They said they've got some fortified cities, which is just outstanding. The people are enormous. The, the land's flowing with milk and honey. It even took two guys to bring back one cluster of grapes. So you can imagine how, how much in awe the people of Israel were of the land. And in the passage we read in verse 21, we understand that Joshua didn't, send, or didn't clear the land in order to test the people of Israel. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. See, Joshua intentionally left some of the nations in Israel to test Israel that word test is, is the same word that's used of Abraham in, uh, in Genesis when God tested him with his son, Isaac, as whether he was going to be obedient to what God has asked him to do. It was a test that Abraham passed, and it's a test that here Israel fails. You see, they had a choice. They went into this land of amazing things around them, and they had a choice. Were, were they going to trust God and obey him? Or were they going to look around them and think, well, this looks really good. They seem to have a successful thing going on. Maybe we should just copy what they're doing, even though that's in disobedience to God. And rather than trusting God, they chose the common sense way, thinking that they knew better than God 
and learned the secrets of the, of the nations that were there in order to enjoy the prosperity they were seeing around them. And their worldly common sense, rather than God's word to them, was what they followed, even though that was in opposition, even though the two were in opposition. <clears throat> in this case, following the world meant disobeying God. And I don't know about you, but I'm not confronted by Baal worship regularly and not tempted to go and follow after them. But I wonder, how are we tested to trust in the way of the world and opposed to the trusting in God's ways when the two are in opposition? How does success and prosperity and other avenues of, of growth in the world around us tempt me to trust in following the way the world gets those things in opposition to the way God tells me to go after them? When you're experiencing suffering or when you're enjoying prosperity or experiencing loneliness or wrestling with politics, are you tempted to abandon the way that God sends, says to walk in obedience to him in order to embrace as a replacement the ways of the world when the two are in conflict? In our fallen nature, just as the Israelites were in the book of Judges, we are all inclined to abandon God in favor of what is right in our own eyes. Man is unfaithful. But in contrast, and the second point, is that God is faithful. Israel's behavior should shock us and fill us with fear when we understand that we are no different from them. God's behavior should shock us and fill us with rejoicing we shouldn't be shocked that he was provoked to anger as we read in verse 12 by the behavior of the Israelites we shouldn't be shocked that he allowed Israel to be oppressed by their enemies as we read in verse 14 we should be shocked and amazed by what we read in verse 16 it says then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them we should be shocked and amazed that God would intervene not to judge and to destroy an unfaithful people, but that he should save them. Why would a holy and all good, all sovereign God of Israel not destroy a people who are faithless? Why would he time and again raise up judges to save his people? He rose up Othniel, Ehud. Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. A lot of people with some funny names, but consistently sent to save an unfaithful people. The only explanation to this is of God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness to his promise to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 that he was no longer, was never again going to destroy an unfaithful people in one fell swoop. It's God's faithfulness to his promise, his covenant promise to Abraham, that we see in Genesis chapter 17, that he would maintain Abraham's descendants and give them a land. Now, as a, as a quick side note, we need to understand what is, what is a judge, these judges that he raised up. It's not a judge in the judicial sense that we might think of today as a judge. Um, a judge in the book of Judges is more of a military leader who was raised up to deliver the people from, from their oppressing enemies. But we must be careful, though, in when we understand and see God's faithfulness to save God's people because of his promises to them, 
that he's not faithful like a good dog. He doesn't come when he's called. He doesn't do as he's told. He's not quick to forgive when I beckon him and hold up. You promised. Come on, be good. It's not that man has something over God that we can hold over him and do as he called him to do as we tell him to. God is faithful to himself, to his character, and to his word. God was not surprised by Israel's behavior in the book of Judges. He was fully aware of what man is capable of when he was making those promises to Noah and to Abraham and to us. He chose to make them because of his own goodness and by his very nature he can't break them. And God's faithfulness to his promises is displayed here. And sometimes it's displayed, he doesn't even wait for the people to cry out in their distress. If you read through the, site, the stories, some of them times the people get so distressed that they cry out to God and he raises up a judge. Other times they don't even think about turning to God for help and he still sends a saviour. God's aid to his people doesn't come from them sorting out their lives. Doesn't come from them trying harder. Doesn't come from them being really, really sorry. God's faithfulness to deal with them comes purely on the basis of grace. I'm sure you've heard this before. The, the covenant that God made with Abraham is a covenant or a promise of grace. A grace, grace is undeserved favor. It's made solely with God's commitment to the promise. God made the commitment to the deal. He wasn't dependent upon Israel's part of the bargain. And we all need to remember that when we are confronted and reminded and wrestle with our own unfaithfulness to God. Our hope of being made right with God again and again is not by trying harder to be faithful. Our hope in being right with God is on God's faithfulness to be gracious to us. To be kind to those who don't deserve it. God explained himself who he was to to, um, to Moses, sorry, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we read this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is faithful even when man is unfaithful. But that doesn't mean that God is ambivalent to when his people abandon him. He's not ambivalent to when we may abandon him. The book of Judges also shows us the third thing, that God calls us to follow him faithfully. God's faithfulness means he will never abandon his people, but God's holiness means that he will never abandon the demand for purity and holiness in his people. As well as those promises to be faithful to his people, God also gave some other promises to Moses, specifically the law about how to follow him in obedience. And with that law came promises to bless obedience and to punish or curse disobedience. And in particular, regarding the promised land, God gave instructions to destroy the inhabiting people and all references to their gods. And we see that, a little reference to it at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, let me read verse 1 to 3. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you out up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. 
I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Give you a picture of what it was, what it means for why God commanded the people of Israel to drive out the inhabitants. Now, um, I've been in the U.S. for ten years and been in New England for two and a half years, and uh, everyone in the in the King of Grace Church is doing their best to make me into a Patriots fan, and and it's kind of working. It's, it's and I'm I'm okay with that. Um, but they need to know that I'm still in my heart an Englishman, and my soccer team is Liverpool. Liverpool Football Club. I don't know if you know anything about English soccer, but that's okay. You don't need it for the purpose of this illustration. But um, you need, also need to know we're, we're currently renting a house. My wife and I, Kelly and I, we're looking to um, seek to, to buy a house next year. And I want you to imagine that we find the perfect house that we're looking for. It's got everything we require. You, know, you make the little checklist of things you want. It's got everything except for one thing. The house is owned by a Manchester United fan. And I don't know if there's any connection between Manchester, New Hampshire, to the English counterpart. Hopefully this isn't an offensive illustration to you. <laughs> but Manchester United and Liverpool are not good friends. They're, not, they're, they're rivals. It's like the Patriots and maybe the, the Giants, let's say. So imagine this house is owned by a Manchester United fan, and he is an all-out United fan. The wallpaper has Manchester United logos on it. The lampshades have Manchester United logos on it. The bedsheets have Manchester United logos on it. The, the blankets, you name it, everything is Manchester United. And he's willing to sell the house to us, but on one condition. Everything can go except for the wallpaper. Wallpaper has to stay. And because it meets all of the criteria that we want for the house, we think, okay, well, fine, we'll just we'll deal with it. No big deal. But over time, I notice something interesting and, and somewhat disturbing. I find that as I'm checking up on my soccer scores and I'm looking for Liverpool results, my eye catches and lands upon Manchester United scores as well. And I, and I find myself actually looking for those and I'm actually slightly pleased. And I find it's a little, little kind of happier as I, as I see that they, they win the occasional games. I'm, I'm pleased to see how they're doing. And... And uh, one day I hear my children playing, and I've got some kids who like playing soccer in my house. They know how kids like to f dream about what they want to do when they grow up. Um, one of my kids says that when they're older, they want to play for Manchester United. And whew, gives me a gives me a chill. But that's a little bit of what the influence of idolatry looks like it, to the people of Israel, and it, what it can look like in our lives, going after other gods, valuing other people over God, it's, it's a little bit like that. But it's also much, much worse, and it's far more appalling. See, the Bible doesn't portray idolatry like changing sports teams, going from being a Patriots fan to being a Giants fan or a Liverpool fan to being a Manchester United fan. It's not a sporting relationship that we have with God. It's a relationship in any relationship in fact, it's a special one, more akin to marriage. It's more like if that house owner not, didn't leave behind Manchester United wallpaper, but left behind his wife 
And rather than thinking that's weird, for some reason, again, we accepted that and allowed her to stay in our house. And not just stay in our house, sleep in the bedroom. And not just that, but enjoy the intimacy of a relationship reserved only for marriage between one man and one woman. And as I describe that to you, I'm, I'm appalled and repelled by that image as we, as we should be. And yet that's what happened in this passage. If you look at verse 17, it says, They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. When we rightly understand the intimacy and exclusivity of the relationship God calls us to, in, to be in relationship with our God and with us, we understand the seriousness of following God faithfully. And he will not tolerate any second functional gods in our lives. Theologian Karl Barth said this, Alongside God, there can be no other God, or God ceases to be God, and all that we really have are two idols. We've already seen that left to ourselves, mankind is unfaithful to God. And yet he calls us to be faithful. So the final and fourth thing that we see from the book of Judges is that God not only calls his people to follow him faithfully, he equips us to be faithful. Just like the people of Israel, time and time again, we turn away from God because we cannot change who we are at our core. We cannot change what's inside us. We cannot fix our inclination away from God by praying harder, by trying harder, by reading our Bible more, by throwing out things that are idols to us because our hearts will simply generate new ones. We might even take pride in how hard we're trying to please God. It's not to say that it's wrong to cast out idols, but it doesn't get to this, the root of our issue. But the book of Judges points us to how we get there. It points us to two things that come after the book of Judges about how God equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. First, in verse 18, we read this. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. Whenever God raised up a man to save his people, he saved them for all the life of that, that judge. God's people desperately need a godly leader to follow, a savior of sorts who will be with them and who God is with. And God, the judges did that imperfectly, very imperfectly sometimes. But the book ends pointing us to a new office that God would appoint to his people. We read it earlier, but again, if you look at the very last verse of the book of Judges, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. That, that verse is there deliberately to point us to a new office. After the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, we then go into the period of kings where we see the book of, we see about Saul and we see about David and Samuel and then uh, and Saul, sorry, Solomon and others. But beyond that, the kings that we read about in the life of Israel point us to the one true king who perfectly walked in God's ways. 
So just like the judges, the kings, the earthly kings that were over the people of Israel failed in many ways as well. But Jesus Christ is the one true king who never failed God, perfectly walked with God and came to save us, not just from our enemies around us, from Satan and the world, but just as no other king possibly could, he died on the cross to save us from the enemy within, to take our wickedness of our hearts that are inclined to abandon God and to forever take God's judgment upon himself that we deserve for the sin of abandoning him. And Jesus conquered death and sin through his resurrection so that we now look to one perfect and eternal judge and king whom we can follow forever. But Jesus doesn't simply lead us from his throne. He dwells with us and is in us by his Holy Spirit. And that's the second thing that we see in the book of Judges, how God equips us to be faithful. The Spirit of God comes upon his people and giving them supernatural grace and power to follow him. Seven times through the book of Judges, you don't see it in the passage we read, so you'll have to read through it to, to see it for yourselves. But we read how the Spirit of God came upon Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson four times. After Jesus' ascension to his throne, at the day of Pentecost, we see the Spirit of God coming upon, not just upon the leaders, not upon the key appointed individuals, but upon all believers. The Holy Spirit is no longer reserved for a few but he dwells in and with all who turn and trust in Jesus Christ to be our saviour and king. And through the, his power, we can overcome the sinful inclination in our hearts away from God and grow in wholehearted obedience to him in all of his ways. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church this way. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, left to ourselves, the book of Judges shows the darkness of the human heart that is compelled to follow this downward spiral of abandoning God. But the book of Judges also points us to the full truth, the bigger picture that we see throughout the scriptures that is ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ. That by God's grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, not only is that downward spiral broken, it's not inevitable for the Christian. He's also made it possible for us to live in an upward spiral of living lives that grow and increase in Christ-likeness, that walk in, walk in purpose in following Christ. So the God of all faithfulness calls and equips unfaithful people to follow him faithfully. In my introduction, I said that the book of Judges is not a book of heroes. The book of Judges is a book with one hero, one deliverer, one faithful and patient and loving and gracious, merciful God of Israel and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. King's Cross Church, we can follow him faithfully, our King Jesus, abandoning all false gods that may remain in our lives and be a snare to us by the strength and power he gives us by his Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us and are faithful, faithful to your promises, to your people. 
faithful to send a saviour, one whom we can follow, and faithful to send your Holy Spirit to give us power to cast off idols and those which would be a snare to us. Lord, I pray, examine our hearts and help us to see those things that remain in our lives that you call us to cast off. And help us to wholeheartedly and faithfully pursue you in the power and grace you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.